1: Hello and welcome to Pop Crime, where we discuss everything from the gossip to the gavel, the latest scandals, trending legal dramas, as well as the infamous crimes and dirty deeds of the pop culture past. I'm Kiki Monique. If you follow me online, you probably know me as The Talk of Shame, your go-to source for the biggest pop culture stories and famous trials. I love to consume all the news, books, TV movies, and other media and break down the stories so you don't have to. Every week, I'll unpack a new story in the pop culture true crime world, either something that's happening in real time or a reach back into the past. And I'll even have some of your favorite creators, attorneys, journalists, other pop culture accounts, and more on the show to weigh in. If you haven't heard of Benita Alexander, you probably have heard of her story, especially recently as it has been trending in the top 10 on Netflix, Bad Surgeon, Love Under the Knife is a three-part docuseries that unravels the tale of Dr. Paolo Maccarini, a world-renowned surgeon who turned out to be a dangerous con artist who fooled an entire medical community and the world, and patients ended up dead. Maccarini was this celebrated doctor who was performing artificial trachea replacement. He was using plastic tracheas, or windpipes, bathed in the patient's own stem cells that he said would eventually become one with the human tissue. This was a groundbreaking development because it would mean that people on donor lists would no longer have to wait for human donors. Organs could essentially be harvested in a lab. Benita, who is an award-winning television showrunner, producer, correspondent, and narrator, was working on a special about regenerative medicine when she met Paolo in 2013. Even though it was taboo for a journalist to be involved with the subject, she ended up falling in love with Paolo and engaged to be married in what was anticipated to be one of the biggest society weddings of the year. But it all turned out to be lies, and Benita's entire world was shattered when she discovered who Paolo really was. I actually met Benita working on one of her shows, Crimes Gone Viral, that I was a pop culture true crime contributor for. And that was when I first learned about her story. So of course, when I saw Bad Surgeon pop up on my Netflix recommendations, I reached out to Benita and asked her to join us on Pop Crime. Welcome, Benita. How are you?
2: Great. Thanks for having me, Kiki.
1: Oh, my God. It's been so long since we've seen each other, I feel like. I know, right? <laughs> and that was when I first, you know, really learned about your case. I mean, and this, this case goes back to 2013. And this new Netflix docuseries, Bad Surgeon, Love Under the Knife, it came out at the end of 2023. Th- this has been a decade of your life talking about Dr. Paolo Maccarini. I mean... Do you sort of resent having to, like, that he's just, like, been in your life this long? And do you ever look forward to the day where you're, like, not thinking or talking about him?
2: Um, It does get exhausting. It's been, well, 10 years since I met him, almost 10 years since I met him. But eight years since I started talking about this because I started, t- I went public in 2016. So, but as tiring as it becomes sometimes I think it's necessary and continues to be necessary even now he's been sentenced to 30 months behind bars or 30 and he's still running around he's not behind bars I mean it's incredible and it just until there's justice I don't I just don't think I can stay quiet and I also think that I've been able to help a lot of women along the way a lot of women thank me um, for making them feel less alone less stupid and as long as I'm continuing to do that then I don't mind talking about it.
1: Yeah, you have helped a lot of people. And I think, look, there's so many parts of this story, and I want to try to get into as many parts as we can. But the thing that really stands out to me is, you know, we all have been watching true crime. I mean, this is your investigative reporter. This is your specialty. At any time, at least I'm watching stories about con artists, it seems like it's just like they're a full-on con. But in Paolo's case, he was a surgeon. He was a brilliant scientist, But, like, everything else was sort of, like, related to that was the con. And I feel like that's why it was able to go on so long, don't you? I mean, the fact that he at least had some parts that were real about him.
2: Yeah, exactly. He's incredibly charming. He's incredibly intelligent. He's an incredibly skilled, manipulative, pathological liar, in my opinion. And because he walks the walk and talks the talk and seemed to be exactly what he says he is... Everybody fell for it. Everybody believed him. I mean, he's very, very convincing.
1: What's the point? I mean, I'm trying to understand if you spend, I mean, going to school to become a surgeon, that's just years and so much money that goes into that. What is the point of then becoming a con artist? Is this like, does he have a God complex? Like what would take him to this level where it's like, why wouldn't you just want to be a world-renowned surgeon? You you really have achieved that.
2: I think a couple of things. I think Unequivocally, he's a narcissist and has a God complex. And many people, if you watch Bad Surgeon on Netflix, say the same thing. I think there are still questions about his credentials and his career. And I've heard from people that worked with him in the operating room that he's a very skilled cutter. He's a very skilled surgeon. I've also heard now from a lot of people who say, when the shit hits the fan and something goes wrong, he bails. So he's not the one that's handling the surgery when something goes wrong. So I think there are things we don't know about him still. There have been lies uncovered on his CV. There are ongoing investigations at the moment. The thing that the whole world is focused on is his artificial tracheas. these crazy transplants he was doing where he was putting a plastic windpipe into people's throats, a completely artificial organ. But prior to that, he worked in Germany, he worked in Paris, he worked in Barcelona. And there are people that think that there are a trail of dead patients before we ever got to the plastic tracheas. And I have to say, I wouldn't be surprised if that's the case. So I think he's been reckless, dangerously, deadly reckless for a long time. And I kind of wonder, to be honest, you know, where where are the holes in and the surgeon skills to see these, what, what else don't we know? I'm not sure we know the full truth about Dr. Paolo Macarini yet.
1: Wow, okay. Now, I mean, obviously, we want everyone to go watch this three-part docu-series. I mean, it really yeah. breaks down the full story. But for people who, you know, want to get an understanding, I mean, take us back. I mean, you were doing, you know, you are this award-winning investigative journalist. You were doing a special on regenerative medicine, and you were researching, and you discover that, you know, Dr. Macarini is doing something that no other surgeon is doing where he is saying he can take these plastic I mean I think it's made out of what soda bottles are made out take these plastic windpipes same plastic yeah and replace tracheas it's bathed in the patient's own um what is it their stem cells stem cells yeah Yeah. and that it will then connect to the tissue when you discover him you're like you know you want him to be a part of the story and that's where it sort of begins for you
2: Right. We were looking into doing a special about this very exciting field in medicine, which has a lot of promise and a lot of hope because you're basically talking about getting to the point where you can literally get new body parts in the lab, right? And you eliminate the need for organ donation. And there are tons of problems with organ donation. People, you know, reject them, people get sick. And so it's this very exciting, promising field and also the ability to help people who literally have no other hope, right? And his name kept coming up. We were looking into doing something about this. There was a lot of hype about stem cells at the time. And Dr. Paolo Macchiarini's name keeps popping up. And he was considered at the time kind of at the forefront of this very exciting field. He was the the pioneer, the renegade. And he had a reputation for being somewhat of a rebel, somebody who was willing to take risks that nobody else would take and do things that nobody else was willing to do but you need people like that in medicine, right? You don't move medicine forward unless you have people that are willing to take the chances. And so there was a lot of um, hype around him, a lot of promise, a lot of excitement. His nickname was the super surgeon and the miracle man. And he kind of walked on water, you know, and he worked at the place in Sweden that awards the Nobel prize in medicine. So he was the guy he, you know, when you're talking about the field, he was the guy.
1: And when you met him, you know, at that point he had replaced, I mean, I don't remember at the time you met him. I know that later by the, I think it was by the end of October 13th, he had already done, I think, six surgeries on, on people with this. And at this point, did you know any had passed away or were you just aware he had done surgeries?
2: When I met him, he would ultimately put this artificial trachea into eight patients around the world. I, I think when I met him, he was about to do the fifth. This was this beautiful little Korean toddler. And that's we were focusing our story around Hannah Warren, this beautiful little toddler from Korea who had been born with no windpipe, who had lived her whole little life, she was two, in the hospital, never left the hospital. So she was going to be the youngest person in the world to ever get one of his artificial tracheas, and she was being operated on in the United States. So it was a, it was a big deal, and that's what we were focusing our story around. At the time, what he said and what he continues to say, actually, until this day, is that when you're doing something experimental and something new and pioneering, people will die. What happened with the first heart transplants, lung transplants? Patients die. Well, that's true. Okay. The difference is What he didn't do, which we wouldn't find out until much later, is that he was literally using his patients as human guinea pigs. He didn't do any of the animal experiments that you're supposed to do prior to doing an experimental procedure. He didn't get any, literally any of the ethical, you know, approvals. He skipped all the steps. So he hides behind this thing that, okay, well, p- patients die, and these patients are all pioneers. If they die, we learn something for them from them, which sounded legitimate. And when I met him at the time, the couple of patients that had died, their families were still supporting Paulo. Everybody believed that, you know, he was the miracle man. And it's easy now, a decade later, in hindsight, to go, well, h- wait a minute, how come, you know, how come she didn't know? How come they didn't know? None of this had... The, stuff that we know now had come out yet. You know, the whistleblowers in Sweden that ended up revealing all of this. Nobody, unfortunately, when I met him and we started doing a story on him, he was still the guy that walked on water. Nobody knew yet that anything was wrong.
1: Is it possible? Is anyone even going down these paths or was he doing? I mean, I know it's experimental. but Was it so out of the realm that it's like this (laughs) is impossible and he should never have been doing this?
2: When he started, he first started doing it with donor tracheas, cadaver tracheas that come from people who have passed away. And so then you're taking an actual trachea and you're bathing it in the patient's own stem cells. That actually has some potential, some promise. They've had some success so that there were other doctors around the world doing that. It was being done in England and other places. It's not without problems, but he started with that. And then for some reason, he suddenly decides out of nowhere to leapfrog to this drastic idea of making a trachea, instead of taking one out of somebody who's passed away and taking a donor organ, literally making this plastic tube in the lab. I have no idea what possessed him to do that. I think he got carried away with his own success and fame and the narcissism took over and he had this radical idea. And I think he's just completely reckless. I think he was caught up in his own delusional you know, fantasy that he could do this and the the idea of the fame and the accolades. And I think he knew from the beginning that it wasn't going to work. And I don't think he cared. I really don't think he cared. He lied. He claimed he had done it on pigs. The very first man that ever got this artificial trachea. He sat there and it's on video. He's telling the guy that I've done this on pigs. There were no pigs. He never did this on any pigs. I mean, he just literally decided to experiment on human beings.
1: I love reading fiction, especially gripping crime thrillers or mysteries that are impossible to put down. That means I'm finishing books fast and constantly looking for another read. When I'm trying to decide what to pick next, I know Book of the Month has my back. Each month, the Book of the Month provides me with amazing books to choose from. The list of books are all curated by their editorial team, so you know they'll be good. First, I go onto their app to pick a new book from their curated list of five to seven suggestions. I am really excited about the books I chose this month. My first book this month is The Return of Ellie Black by Amiko Jean. A page-turning mystery thriller follows detective Chelsea Calhoun investigating a missing girl who reappears after two years, but she is left with more questions than answers. I also received Middletide by Sarah Crouch in this debut novel, The Suspicious Death of a Young Doctor Rocks a Small Town. Failed writer Elijah Lee finds himself fighting for his innocence when the circumstances of the doctor's death were ripped straight from the pages of his own novel. Book of the Month makes it easy to branch out into new genres and discover books you've never read. And shipping is always free. You can get your first Book of the Month for just $5 with the code PEDALS by visiting bookofthemonth.com. That's your first book of the month for just $5 with code PEDALS by visiting bookofthemonth.com. Have you ever felt that fast fashion ick but can't always afford the super high-end stuff? I have a solution for you. Newly, Newly has everything you need to bring your closet up to speed for the season without breaking the bank. For just $98 a month, you get your choice of any six styles each month. You can choose whatever you want to rent for whatever you have going on. It's totally up to you. There are no fees, late fees, damage fees, or fees to pause or cancel. So no big deal if you lose a button or spill something or just need to take a break. They have inclusive sizing up to 5X, as well as petite and maternity. Get fast, free shipping and returns and professional cleaning in Newly's state-of-the-art laundering facility and you always have the option to buy what you love, for sometimes up to 75% off. Newly is a great value at $98 a month for any six styles, but right now you can get $20 off your first month of Newly when you sign up with the code POPCRIME20. Just go to N-U-U-L-Y.com, that's Newly with two U's, and enter the code POPCRIME20 and sign up to get $20 off your first month. That's N U U L Y dot com, newly with two U's with code POPCRIME20. Newly subscription clothing rental. Change your clothes. One of his patients was this guy, Danilo. His mother ends up becoming Paolo's lover and ends up having a baby with him, which is insane and she you know she thought he was she was trying to save his son's life and then you have the christopher lyles family you know they were so close they ended up getting invited to the eventual wedding which we'll talk about um that you were going to have i mean they really thought that he was trying to help them
2: yeah look i think i'm not an expert right i can't diagnose him but i personally think he is either a sociopath or a psychopath he has to be and he is very convincing with everybody that he meets that included me that included the the patients and their families doctors scientists i mean he pulled the wool over so many people's eyes famous institutions and the reason is he's very 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 convincing you know and so he comes across when you meet him the same way he did with me with his patients and i saw it with his patients he comes across as this genuinely caring altruistic person who just literally wants to give people hope and wants to help people who have no other hope and you believe that you know his patients believe that their families believe that you thought this was a man who was devoted to helping mankind to pushing medicine forward and who was kind of selfless actually i mean at the beginning He seemed to be exactly the opposite, polar opposite of what he actually is. You know, you thought he was this humble, caring, selfless man who was devoting his life to helping people. And in reality, he didn't care about them at all.
1: One of the things that I'm sure you get a lot of or got a lot of is like, how could this like investigative journalist been conned by this man? Like she knows these things. And, you know, a lot of, obviously, you go into the backstory of how your ex-husband, who's also the father to your daughter, passed away. You were in a very vulnerable place. Paula was there really comforting you, supporting you. And that was sort of how you ended up falling in love. You were, of course, keeping this away professionally because you're still working on a story. There, It was taboo. You didn't want people to know. But one of the stories In your original film that you did, he lied about everything that wasn't included was about how, you know, after your ex passed away, you had your own health scare. And then Paolo took you on a trip and you had had a surgery before this trip and then you developed an infection and the infection got so bad. And Paolo takes you into the hotel room and says, you know, do you trust me? And he ends up just slicing you in the hotel room and saving your life. And so when you hear those stories, it really provides context for like, this is how you end up falling for a man. He literally saved my life in a hotel room with like, what was it, hotel scissors?
2: Basically, yeah. Look, I think, I mean, there are a couple of points there. I think the vulnerability aspect is important. Um, and it's very, I, this is one of the things that I'm adamant about telling women now, if you're vulnerable for any reason, right, any reason, you've just lost a loved one, you've been through a difficult breakup or divorce, whatever it is, you lost a job, they, these con artists have what I like to call a vulnerability radar. They know who they can manipulate. They know who they can pounce on. And they're very, very skilled at making you think that, sorry, there's a siren. It's in New York. <laughs> New York <yeah>. Um, um, <laughs> um that they really care about you. And so at the beginning I'm pouring my heart out to Paulo. I mean, I'm having my own health issues. I just lost my ex-husband and now I'm a single mom to our beautiful daughter and I'm absolutely devastated on her behalf. How, you know, how's this going to impact her? And they they work their way into your life when you're vulnerable. And it's really simple when you think about it. When you're vulnerable and you're hurting, what do you what do you need? You need somebody to wrap their arms around you and tell you that everything's gonna be okay. And that's what they do. And they do it very, very manipulatively. You know, They know exactly what they're doing. So they get you that way. The other thing, and I think it's hard for people to understand when you're not in the crutches of a con man, and it's the same thing that he did professionally, there is an element of gaslighting and brainwashing that goes on. They're so good at convincing you that they're telling the truth and that they are who they say you are, that if you start to doubt them and question them... I call it the fog. They start making you feel like something's wrong with you. They're so rapid fire. I would never lie to you and, you know, bam, bam, bam. And here's why And this thing, blah, 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 you know, without a pause. So anytime you question them, they're so good at making you question, think, oh, okay, maybe it's me. Maybe I, he, he must not be lying to me. Why would he be lying to me? And when you're in the thick of that, I don't think you really even understand what's happening. And it happens very, very slowly. It's not like they wham you over the head with all these lies. It's a very sort of slow, meticulous weaving of this web of lies. Like they're, they're luring you in. It's just so calculated. It's sick. And so... I think it's hard to understand from the outside what that feels like. But when if you can imagine literally almost being in a fog, but you're in a fog and you love this person and or you believe in this person if you're the patient or if you're the doctor and he's he seems to be exactly who he says he is. So it becomes very difficult to question them. There just doesn't seem to be any logic to why would somebody like
1: that lie? It's so interesting how you talk about gaslighting, because I feel like, you know, back in 2013, I don't even think we had language around it. Or if we did, people had it only that they talked with their therapist about. Now it's very open. So it's like, in addition to the gaslighting, I think he was obviously love bombing you. Because, you know, you met him in February 2013. You're engaged by Christmas Day of that same year. Um, you know, obviously looking back, we can see that was love bombing. Did your friends at the time think that it was off, that he, you know, how, how fast things were moving or did they, were they also sort of wrapped into it?
2: No, I mean, the, the interesting thing um In hindsight, it was like love bombing and overdrive. You know, he was the most romantic man I would literally I'd ever met. Everything was a surprise. Everything was over the top. He flew me all over the world. Everywhere we went were these elaborate, romantic, you know, ridiculously over-the-top surprises. But it wasn't just at a short period at the beginning. I mean, this continued throughout our whole two-year relationship. So... (laughs) Although it, I think it was love bombing, it wasn't something that there was an end to, which is what happens with most con artists. The other thing is, most con artists that dupe women are after one thing, and that's money, you know, and that's, you see that with the Tinder swindler and other people like that. Money was not his motive, you know, he was so generous, and not just with me, with my friends, with my family. And so, Everybody just thought, and it fits with his personality. He's this larger-than-life guy that, you know, is doing something that nobody else in the world is doing, that works at the place that gives awards to Nobel Prize in medicine, is rumored, in fact, to be in contention for a Nobel Prize himself. So, and he's Italian and, you know, all of it. And so all these over-the-top, grandiose gestures just fit with who Paolo was. So I think everybody just thought it was incredibly romantic to the point honestly, that all of my friends were a little bit envious, you know, men, women, gay, straight, everybody. I'd come home from a trip and they're like, oh my God, what did he do now? Tell us what he did now, you know? And everybody was kind of living vicariously through me. And I don't think, I mean, everybody thought it was extravagant, but he was extravagant, right? So it it wasn't just like some ordinary guy doing crazy things. It just fit with who he was. It was his lifestyle. So I, no, I don't think anybody questioned that. And he did it with them too. He would take 20 people out to dinner and pay for everybody and, you know, buy expensive bottles of champagne, the whole thing, you know,
1: it was what he did. And so you get in, you end up getting engaged at your, your special still hasn't come out. So your family and friends know, but like professionally, you still haven't really told anyone yet as the wedding is being planned. You know, I guess colleagues in Sweden are starting to question Paulo, And I think this sort of sort of team of like four whistleblowers kind of starts to form around that same time. And so we get to the point where in 2014, I guess you wake up to a New New York Times article that has him. And it's like a story about him basically being a fraud.
2: Yeah, it wasn't that extreme yet. We were our, our wedding was set for July 2015. So by, you know, early 2014, the special that I had been doing on him had aired and we had, you know, gone public with our relationship and we were planning this very elaborate extravagant wedding and he had alluded to a colleague that was jealous and wanted to take him down and you know was envious of all his notoriety and success and which makes sense that's that happens a lot in the medical arena, pati- particularly with competition for grants and to get published in papers and whatnot. So that's the only thing I had ever heard was about this one jealous colleague. And then in November of 2014, I wake up and there's this article in The New York Times and it was about people at like Karolinska, the place he worked in Sweden that awards the Nobel Prize accusing him of scientific misconduct. So these were not criminal allegations yet. And it was not yet saying that there was anything that had caused the death of his patients or anything saying that the trachea, the plastic trachea didn't work. It was saying that he had basically um, exaggerated in his papers and falsified data in papers. At the time, he continues to say the same thing he's always said. Well, they're just trying to take me down. You know, They're I'm being unfairly maligned. They're attacking me. And in fact, as it turned out, after some investigation, Karolinska backed that up. And they said the charges, you know, were, were dismissing them. I think that happened like in March of um, 2015. So it seemed like everything was fine. It seemed initially like it was exactly what Paulo said it was, that it was just some jealous people who wanted to take him down. And when you have the institution that's employing him, Karolinska, who's just very famous, and the place that awards the Nobel Prize, saying, yeah, okay, you know, they're wrong. This is nothing. We still support him. And they rehired him. They gave him another contract. There just was no reason to think, you know, it was disturbing, and it was concerning. And we talked about it. But it did look like it was what he said it was that there was there
1: was nothing to it. Do you think Karolinska backed him up just cause they were scared of their own liability? Or do you think they legitimately like believed in him?
2: I think what happened at Karolinska is pretty much parallel to what happened with almost everybody that crossed Dr. Paolo Macchiarini's path. It is very difficult to wrap your head around the fact that this guy is not who you think he is. You know, it was, it was difficult for me. Um, because he, it's so shocking, you know, it's so shocking that this man that you think is, you know, doing this groundbreaking sh- surgery that has devoted his life to helping people and in my case, you know, I thought I was spending the rest of my life with and had committed, you know, to moving me and my daughter to Barcelona after the wedding and convinced me to give up my job for him, all these things. So there's that initial you don't want to, you sort of don't want to believe it. I think in the case of Karolinska unfortunately and the reason it took the whistleblowers to come forward there was so much money and prestige and promise and hope attached to this man. I mean, you're talking about millions of dollars in grants and funding. They were talking about building a whole institution around him at Karolinska. His nickname was the super surgeon. I don't think that anybody wanted him to not be who they thought he was. So I think when people first started mumbling that, oh, hold on, something's wrong, it was a very, very inconvenient truth. And I think there was a whole lot of sweeping under the rug going on because nobody wanted to face the devastating reality, the horrific reality of what what seemed to be brewing that this man is a complete fraud.
1: Good thing Instacart shoppers are just as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They're milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply.
0: In the market for
2: investment-worthy bags, watches, and fine jewelry, Rebag is the answer.
1: What we see in the you know Bad Surgeon docu series is the whistleblowers seem to get in trouble. They, I mean, did they all lose their job or did some of them lose their jobs? It, like, I think one of them had to kind of go into hiding. It seemed
2: they they were given a very very difficult time. Those guys um, are heroes to me, and in my opinion, I mean, they worked diligently first of all to gather all the evidence. You know, they they put their jobs on the line. They had to dig through so many medical records. I mean, s- so many steps had been taken to. Eliminate evidence and cover up evidence. I mean, and they were, you know, full on detectives, and they worked meticulously, and they had mountains of paperwork when they went to Karolinska. But when they first went to Karolinska, Karolinska didn't want to hear it. This was their superstar, their surgeon. And so as unfortunately, very often happens with whistleblowers, you know, they pointed the finger at them. And it's, it's different, but it's, I feel the same way. Sometimes it's akin to, you know, I've been trying to sort of blow the whistle on him and talk about him for a long time and then I get victim shamed and people attack me and it's it's different, but it's the equivalent. You know, people are, why are we not pointing the finger at him? He's the fraud, he's the con artist, he's the one who killed people. I don't really care about any of the rest of it. You know, even my relationship doesn't even matter. The bottom line is this man killed people. You know, he's he's reckless. He's dangerous. Um, and, yeah, the whistleblowers had a hard time. They're all, they're lovely. I've met all of them in Sweden now. And, you know, they've all gotten new jobs. I, I think one, at least one of them still works at Karolinska. But... You know, they were dragged into police rooms and interrogated. you know, I mean, talk about interrogating the wrong people. I mean, it was it was nuts and all because all they tried to do was the right thing. They
1: tried to tell the truth and you said evidence was being covered up, hidden like who was trying to cover it up? Who was trying to destroy evidence
2: oh Paulo paulo Obvi- uh, obviously, Paulo,
1: yeah, so he knew like the, the gig was up, but he was covering his his tracks pretty much.
2: Look, I, th- I think personally, in hindsight, that's why he targeted me. I think when I met him, the world did not yet know, you know, any of this. You know, um, soon after I met him, the whistleblowers would be quietly working behind the scenes, but they wouldn't go public with, or it wasn't leaked, actually. It was leaked to the New York Times in November of 2014. But he had to know, right? He had to know already that this fantasy world of these, you know, magical plastic tracheos that he had created, it was going to implode. Patients were, patients were dying. He was successfully convincing people that this was a normal course of action and convincing the families that everything was okay. But he had to know it was coming down. It was crashing down. It was just a matter of time. And I think he very intentionally targeted me and thought, okay, Here's this smart investigative journalist, you know, let me get her to fall in love with me and let me put her in my back pocket. And so when the, you know, when the shit hits the fan, she's going to defend me. I really think that's what he thought. And in the very same way, you talked about this woman in Italy um, who her son died, you know, and he did not get a plastic trachea. He had another tracheal operation, but her son dies and they launch an investigation in Italy into manslaughter and Paolo's facing manslaughter charges. And then he seduces her. He seduces her so she won't pursue manslaughter charges. And then he has a relationship with her, which, by the way, was going on at exactly the same time as a relationship with me. He had a baby born with this woman in Italy at the same time that he's proposing to me. Um, neither of us knew about each other, but I think it's the same thing. I think he just uses women, you know, to to get what he what he wants. And in that case, he didn't want her to talk. and she was very brave to come forward in the Netflix documentary. She's never come forward. And I've, I, I talked to her and I feel very sorry for her because she's got a child with him. You know, I can't even imagine what that's like. And he's now trying to even deny that the child is his.
1: It's nuts. It's crazy. No, she was amazing in the docuseries. I mean, I, I, I love to see, first of all, just like, just listening to her, like, just like the Italian, you know, the, the accent and everything, just like, I'm, she's like so commanding, um, I also just like, I had to turn it off sometimes because I kept thinking about these patients and what a horrible, torturous way that they had to pass away. I mean, this is the way you breathe. It, it, and just thinking about it, you know, you start, you start suffocating in almost yourself because you're like, literally, and the fact that he was just sort of like, he would do these surgeries and then fly away to the next city and people would be calling him and he'd be like, there's nothing I can do, you know, and he would just be ignoring him, like, you know, and it just, it's, it just feels cruel
2: because Kiki he doesn't care. It's beyond cruel. It's I I don't think there are are really words for it. It's so disgustingly reckless and just it's criminal you know he just didn't care you know i think he puts this plastic tube which is basically akin to a straw you might as well have stuck a straw in someone's throat he knew damn well it wasn't working and then this thing literally starts rotting in people's throats oh, they're suffocating they can't breathe it's a horrific way to die it's it's awful it's torture and he just didn't care he's just reckless you know and i again i'm not an expert but i think he's got such a god complex and he's so caught up in his own fantasy world and narcissism eh, that he just either can't see it or won't see it or both i i don't know i don't i don't know i don't know. i honestly don't know how you can live with yourself yeah but he's convinced himself that he's you know and he'll still say to this day he said it in court when i went to court in sweden last year he still believes or at least he tells himself that he all he wanted to do was help people
1: now i know like to you now the 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 con he was pulling on you is sort of secondary. Obviously people were losing their lives, but I will say that like as you're building this wedding and kind of just like, you know, he's planning the wedding. He wants to take control of the wedding and just the level of detail. He was going into planning this wedding that he said, the Pope was going to marry you, that he was going to have, you know, Obama and the Clintons and Putin at your wedding that, you know, and, and like, you were going to have this castle. and people, I mean, just the level of default. And you just wonder, like, you have 300, 350 people that are preparing to get off on a plane, have purchased tickets to this wedding. And, like, was he? does he not think? Does he just think, like, I'm just going to, like, keep going until the con? I, I just don't know what goes through people's mind when they go this far into a con.
2: No, I mean, quickly on the Pope, because that always comes up. And that's the, the thing that I get the most Sort of crap for you know, and I get it. Look, if I if I heard you know if somebody just said to me, oh that woman thought she was getting married by the Pope, I was like, really? Like like come on, what <laughs> look what's wrong with her? I totally get that, but and it's too long of a story to get into. It really wasn't that simple. I mean, it was a very clever you know and very carefully woven lie. There, I mean, he claimed. And think about who this man is. He works all over the world. He's a super surgeon. He's doing surgeries that nobody else does. He claimed that he had been the private personal doctor to Pope Francis for many years. He told many people this. Doctors. I saw paperwork that said this. And then a long story, but he wanted a big Catholic wedding. And then, you know, it started with him claiming he was going to go to the Vatican and ask for help finding somebody that would marry us in a church in Italy because I thought we were both divorces. And the Catholic Church doesn't allow two divorces to get married in the Catholic Church in Italy. And it it just went for it just went from there so it went from i'm asking the vatican to help or to oh my god you're not going to believe this the pope offered offered to marry us himself and when he first told me that i'm like oh bullshit come on like i you know don't be ridiculous i i actually said i said the pope doesn't even marry people it turns out actually and a lot of people don't know this the pope has married people he can marry people if he wants to he married a couple on a plane once he he married 20 couples at the at the vatican just a few months before Paolo told me this, actually, which is probably where he got the idea in hindsight. Um, And then it was, you know, and it it took me a while to come around to this idea. I wasn't immediately convinced, but he, he was very clever. He convinced me that this had nothing to do with us and our relationship anymore, that... Because he had been helping the Pope, he was a Pope's doctor, and this is this very progressive Pope, and the Pope wanted to do do something that would help other people in the Catholic Church. He wanted to open the doors of the Catholic Church, and so because Paolo was his friend, he had asked Paolo if Paolo would kind of do him a favor, and would we be kind of the poster couple to show the world that he's willing to open the doors of the Catholic Church. And so Paulo made it sound like it was an obligation. It wasn't even about our wedding anymore. He was like, you you have to do this. You know, I'm the Pope's private doctor. And because you're my fiance, by virtue of being my fiance, you need to do this. So now it wasn't even about our wedding. So it was, it was just, yeah, it was very clever.
1: I do understand that it's marketing when you are from like a certain elite status, like a lot of times things are done for marketing. So like That's why you have to watch the series because, like, it is explained that well. Well, and also some of the stuff, because there is some realness about Paolo and some, I never knew, like, what was true because, like, yes, he wasn't Pope Francis's personal doctor. But did he actually get called in when Pope John Paul II was dying? Like, did that actually happen?
2: I'm not sure. He said that, and he had told many, many people that, and many people repeated that story. So how do you know? Yeah, exactly. And I'll say he just, he did. He lived in those kind of circles, which are very foreign to a lot of people, but it's not out of the realm of possibility, and celebrities do come to people's weddings. To answer your other question, what was his end game? I think that's the big money question, right? This, very much the same way he knew that everything was going to implode at Karolinska, and it had to it had to get blown open at some point. I don't think he knew... I don't think he ever anticipated the extent to which it would get blown open, but he had to know, you know, he had gone to the, the detail, as you mentioned, was insane, you know, like right down to the kind of food that, you know, he'd was being the wine the everything messages supposedly from his mother about you know the dress she was wearing and all this stuff you know he took me and my daughter to visit his mother in italy by the way you know another reason why who you know we sat in his mother's kitchen in italy you know why would i think the man's lying to me and letting people buy plane tickets from all over the world letting people spend all this money book hotels buy red carpet attire you let it go that far And I was the one that ended up canceling the wedding, because once I figured out he was lying to me and I started investigating him, which was coinciding with all the stuff happening in Sweden, I just said, look, you know, I think you're too stressed. Let's postpone the wedding. Let's call it off. I think this is not a good time to get married. And I did that so that I could investigate him behind his back. But he must have breathed such a huge sigh of relief. What if I hadn't canceled the wedding? We were eight weeks out when I discovered that he was lying. So what was his plan? You know, that's a big question. What, we were all going to show up in Italy, and then what? The only thing I can think of is that he would have said there's been some kind of emergency, you know, dangerous threat. You know, there's been a threat on the Pope's life, or there's been a threat on one of the celebrities' life. But even then, what was he going to do with me? You know, so I'm there with my daughter in my wedding dress. I think I'm moving to Barcelona. I have no idea how the hell he thought he was getting out of this. I think con artists in general and people like Paulo, who i believe he's a you know true blue pathological liar i don't think they really have a plan i think they become very accustomed to getting away with their lies and so they're just kind of putting one foot in front of the other and they keep getting away with it and that and i think they kind of get
1: off on sort of just like oh i got
2: <laughs> they, exactly there's a rush there's a sick high to getting, particularly for narcissists, to getting away with the lie. And that's what's fueling this, you know, and it's just, we can't understand it, because we don't think that way. But that's, it's a twisted, sick rush of of getting away with it, like Leonardo DiCaprio in Catch Me If You Can, or, you know, there are lots of other examples, but they just enjoy the thrill of, of getting away with it. And I think they start believing their own lies to some extent, as well. And so, I don't think he had a plan. He just figured he'd get away with it because up until now, he until I started talking, the whistleblowers started talking, he did get away with it.
1: Now, I don't want to spoil it because I want people to watch, but I mean, the final episodes where we sort of then see you once you have discovered who he is and you go into investigative journalist mode and you start, you know, flying across the world and tracking him down and doing all that, that's amazing. Combined with the fact that I love that a documentary film was basically like the integral part in sort of bringing him down. Because I I feel like documentary filmmakers are sort of like the last great truth teller. So it's like, I just love that that became a big part of the story. But he does get taken down. And as you mentioned at the beginning, he was finally sentenced. It took, it took though, like, because in the original trial, which I think that you went to the original trial, he was only found guilty of one count and it was only of bodily harm. And he got like a suspended sentence and he like left sweden and and so then he appeals it and then i think the prosecution also appeals it and then he ends up being found guilty on all three charges you were were you at every day at the trial were you at all trials
2: yeah yeah he i mean it took a long time this this is very difficult to prove criminally right because these are experimental procedures and because of what he argued that you know, things do go wrong when you're doing something experimental. And how do you prove that he knew it didn't work? And how do you prove that it was his, his plastic, stupid plastic trachea that is what killed the patient and not their underlying condition, which is what he always argued as well. He argues and still argues that his patients were at death's door. That's actually not true. Many of these patients could have lived a very long life or their whole lives, like the Russian dancer, in, in Yulia, that you see in, in Bad Surgeon, she didn't need this operation. So that's a, that's a BS argument that they were at death's door and it was urgent to do these tracheas. But it is very difficult to prove. So it took a long time. And so when Sweden first tried to go after him they kind of dropped the charges and said, uh, we can't prove it, you know, he's reckless, but we can't prove it, which was so disappointing. And that was, I think 2017, right before my film came out, he lied about everything. And then thankfully, because there was so much outrage about this, I mean, people died, that another Swedish prosecutor picked it up again and it was very persistent and tenacious and so many people in Sweden, just, you know, volumes and volumes of, of paperwork showing that he, you know, lied about everything. And so they went after him again. And I went in 2022 to his first trial, which was about a month long. And that was hard. That was the first time I'd seen him, you know. Did he
1: make eyes contact with you and like?
2: No, it was interesting. That time he absolutely refused to look me in the eye. And I was nervous to see him at first because I wasn't sure what I was going to feel. But. Then I sat in that courtroom almost every day just staring at him like, come on, asshole, look at me, you know, like, because he he wouldn't. And then he, like you said, they found him only guilty on one count at that trial in 2022. So this year in May was the appeals trial, and I was there for that. And... That was interesting because this is a much smaller courtroom, and last year he could kind of escape out of a back door with his attorneys, and this time he had to go in and out of the same door as everybody else, and it was very tight, close quarters. So he and I came within inches of each other oh, many, wow. many times. And this time he did try to look at me, and but this time, every time he tried to look at me, I just would turn my back to him or turn my head. And it was just my way of saying, you know, F you, you mean mm-hmm. nothing to me. You know, you didn't take me down. You didn't destroy me. I'm here working, reporting on you and I'm fine. You know, it was just sort of my defiant way of being, you mean nothing to me.
1: It's like that scene in Labyrinth where you're like, you have no power over me. Yeah. <laughs>
2: <laughs> right. <laughs> right. Yeah. Very much. Yeah. And so this time they found him they found him guilty and then he appealed all the way to the Supreme Court. And just in October of twenty twenty three, the Supreme Court said, No, we're not taking on the case. So the the sentence stands, but he's still not behind bars. That's the interesting thing. He's still right down to the eleventh hour trying to negotiate and manipulate everything. So he's been trying to negotiate to serve his time in Spain where he still lives instead of Sweden and to serve it on house arrest which is a joke. So he He wants to sit by the pool sipping some cocktail at his big house overlooking the, you know, instead of behind bars. So, incredibly, he's still not behind bars. And even worse, in the past months, he just did one yesterday, actually, he's been on Italian TV, you know, ranting and raving, attacking me, attacking Anna, the woman in Italy, attacking anybody and everybody and still claiming that he's innocent and everybody else is lying. And he looks like a lunatic. He looks like the mad professor. But it's just... It's disgusting to me and deplorable that this man is convicted, he's a convicted criminal, And he's not sitting behind bars and he's going on Italian TV and still proclaiming his innocence and people died. I mean, I just it's beyond awful.
1: See, I feel like when we are screaming in the streets about criminal justice reform, this is what we're talking about. It's just like the fact that like these people who just have means and money and I don't know. Exactly. Just walk around when they're just doing. And then, you know, somebody who maybe sold some weed on a corner is, you know, locked up for 10 years. It's I know. Exactly. Exactly. You know, I think the thing that also really stood out to me is like, you know, what people don't realize is like you were dealing with back-to-back deaths, really. You were mourning your ex-husband, and then reality, you had to mourn Paulo. Paulo died. The minute you found out who he really was, he died for you, even though he's alive or whatever. I'm just curious, like, how have you been able to process mourn and grieve? Because, you know, it's like all of that happened in a short time span. Has it been just like, you know, doing this work? Has that helped you to get over this? Like what, what helps you? And also, you know, do you have any advice for people to protect themselves against people like Paolo?
2: It's interesting because when something like this happens, it's not like a normal breakup. I mean, the person that I thought I was in love with is an enigma, literally doesn't exist. And so it's in a very abrupt cutoff and it's a very different kind of ending because there's nothing to mourn because the, The person didn't exist, you know, it's just so it's more of a, you know, it messes with your head. I think in my case, I went into hyper investigative mode. I just became so committed to uncovering the truth about him and exposing him. And the minute I realized that he was lying to me about everything and that our whole wedding, literally everything about the wedding was a lie I knew he had been separated from his wife when I first met him. He told me that. They had lived separate lives. But he told me he'd gotten divorced from this woman in Italy. Of course, he never actually divorced her. So he never could have legally married me in the first place. There were four families altogether at the same time that I know about. There's me and my daughter in New York. There's the woman he never divorced in Italy There's the other woman in Italy who came forward that had the baby with him in the middle of a relationship. And then in the house in Barcelona, which you see in Bad Surgeon, I won't ruin everything, I find an entirely other family. So he has four families going at once. He makes up this entire fantasy wedding that was never going to happen. I mean, and the minute I realized and I put all these pieces together, I, I mean, I was terrified. I thought, oh, my God, you know, if he's lying to me like this and telling such ridiculous, insane absurd right just totally absurd lies there's no way he's not lying in his medical and professional life and that's why I decided to go public because I felt an urgent need to expose him I didn't know about you know how the whistleblowers yet and how much information they had and of I didn't know I hadn't have direct evidence of the medical lies but I thought people are in danger this man has people's lives in his hands and so that's the only reason I went public but then as we talked about earlier women started coming forward and that Really surprised me. Actually, I, I was not expecting that. You know, people started thanking me for telling my story and telling me, calling me courageous or brave, which is very humbling. But also saying that I had made them feel less alone and less stupid. And I think one of the things that happens when you are conned, especially as a smart woman, it's incredibly embarrassing. It's incredibly humiliating. There's so much shame and self blame that comes with it because your first thought is how did this happen to me? You know, How in the hell did I get fooled? Why did I believe this? How did, you know, you know, you do feel stupid. And so, and there's so much victim shaming attached with that, you know, people point the finger at the woman. How could you be so dumb? How could you believe this without thinking at all about all the things we talked about, the gaslighting, the brainwashing, the manipulation that goes along. And so my advice to women is a, is a couple of things. Number one, um, if this happens to you, don't blame yourself. This is not your fault. What, did you, what was your crime? Your crime was you fell in love. That's not a crime. Your crime was you wanted to trust the person that you fell in love with. That's not a crime either. If you were vulnerable and you wanted somebody to wrap their arms around you, that sure as hell is not a crime either. You didn't do anything wrong. So I really work hard now to try and get women away from that self-inflicted you know, shame and embarrassment. It's a whole nother massive task to prevent people from pointing fingers and sh- you know shaming the women there's a lot of work that has to be done on that front but i really try to do what i can to educate people about how wrong that is and how misdirected that is and then if you're vulnerable i think that's a really important thing you know if something's going on in your life that makes you vulnerable you have to be hyper vigilant about protecting yourself if you're dating or if you're looking for love because that's when These con artists will pray. That's when you are more likely to get targeted, to get manipulated, and and to not realize what's happening. Um, And then the last thing I always tell women if you're trying to recover from something like this is don't waste any time trying to figure out why this happened, why they did it, or what's wrong with them. Because you never will. Because they're not, you know, many of them are sociopaths sociopaths have no empathy, they have no regret, no remorse, and so we're never going to understand them, it's never going to make sense, because we don't think like them, thank goodness, Um, but so, (laughs) focus on yourself, you know, focus on healing, and, you know, you have to kind of forgive yourself, trust takes a long time, it takes a long time to trust again, it takes a long time to trust yourself again, you know, because you think, I thought, I had good instincts, and so you just have to be patient with yourself, I guess.
1: Thank you, Benita Alexander. Go watch uh, Bad Surgeon, Love Under the Knife. It's on Netflix. It is so good. But where else can people find you? I mean, I'm sure this story is still ongoing because like we said, Paulo isn't even in jail. So where can they follow you to keep up with this?
2: On Instagram and TikTok is where I post everything. And it's Benita, B-E-N-I-T-A. Alexander, A-L-E-X-A-N-D-E-R underscore official. And I post a lot about what's going on with Paulo there. But also I, I give advice and tips, you know, so if you're someone that's been through something like this, or you know, somebody who's been through something like this, it's a good place to go just to get some support, you know, and I think that's one thing that has happened since I went public that um, is really lovely. It's just So many women have just wrapped their arms around me and, you know, with support and it's very empowering. And I think it's very important that women stand up for each other and, you know, be strong for each other.
1: Yeah. The more that come out, the more that can be helped. You can't do anything in the dark. Exactly. Thank you so much, Benita. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Pop Crime is produced by Sean Kilby, Shannon Sassone, and me, Kiki Monique. Editing by Shannon Sassone, guest booking by Allie Freelander and be sure to follow me at the talk of shame on TikTok and Instagram and send your emails to podcast at betches.com. Betches.